My friends, would you pray with me? Almighty God, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. In in just a few minutes, um, we're going to be inviting you all up to the front to turn in these pledge cards. Now, if you haven't filled one out yet, we've got a bunch out here. So feel free to sneak out while I'm not looking and fill one out. But we're going to invite you up to the front, and and you and your family can come up with you, and you can lay your pledge cards on the altar, and Trudy and I will pray over each family as you commit to another year of giving to the Lord. And so for one more week, I'm going to preach about giving, and then then next week, I'll get back to preaching on on the one-year Bible. We'll start on Hebrews next Sunday. But for this week, it's still important to talk for a bit about stewardship and all that it entails, and why it actually matters, not just for keeping the church running, but why it actually matters for you as a Christian, as an individual, as a family, to, to give not, not just of your money, but of your time and your energy and your, your witness to the faith. And so I want to ask, what holds you back from committing to the church? And again, not just financially, but, but in all the other ways. When we offer Bible studies that fit with your schedule, why aren't you there? When we have ministries going on that, that sound interesting to you, why aren't you helping with them? We do, in fact, have worship every Sunday, so where are you on the weeks that you're not here? And yes, how are you spending your money? And I wonder maybe if there are some people who, who have this idea that you're waiting for God to prove something to you before you commit to him further. Or maybe you're just a little bit afraid of what happens when you commit to God. But what if, what if God is waiting for you to take a leap of faith. I'm a bit of a weird person, if you haven't figured that out already. Um, most of you who spent time with me know, Javi's nodding his head back there, he knows. Um, I was never the, the person who had like a big fear of commitment. In fact, on our very first date, uh, I told Mercedes that I was looking for someone to marry. And our entire conversation on that first date revolved around the idea that we, we both kind of felt if we didn't seriously think this relationship would end in marriage, then it wasn't worth our time. Yeah, imagine that being your first date conversation. How many of you would have stuck around? So we, we dated for a year and got engaged, and we were, we were married a year later. I was 22. And at the time, I know I felt like, like, a, like an actual grown-up. Uh, and looking back, I can't imagine what was going in my parents' head that allowed them to let their 22-year-old baby get married. I was not mature enough for that. Let me t- I'm still not, but that's a different story. But I didn't have a fear of the commitment itself. I wasn't, you know, on the night before the wedding, I wasn't afraid or nervous. 
I was excited about beginning our, our life together. I didn't get cold feet. I didn't have those moments of doubt about whether or not this was a good idea. I was just excited to begin our life together. And I'm very aware that that makes me really weird. Especially for someone that young. I know that makes me really weird, right? Most people would be nervous about that kind of commitment, so much so that it's like the most common trope in movies and TV, right? The guy is afraid. It's always the guy, by the way, which I think is sexist, but... um, The guy is afraid to commit, and that's what holds back the relationship, right? Every romantic comedy movie ever has that somewhere in the storyline. Someone's afraid to commit. And you hear these stories of like five, six, seven-year engagements because they're ultimately afraid to to set a date. Here's the thing, though. I I was not afraid. I wasn't even hesitant to commit to Mercedes, right? I, I knew that Finding someone that far out of my league who actually wanted to marry me was nothing short of a miracle, okay? And I locked it down fast. (laughs) But the thing is, I don't do that with Jesus. And if if it's miraculous to find another human being who is that far out of my league, who actually wants to spend her entire life with me, how much more miraculous is it then that the God who created the universe wants me to spend eternity with him? And that's the commitment that I seem to be more afraid of. Now you might think, uh, because I, I went to seminary and I became a pastor and I have built my entire adult life around serving the Lord, that I have already committed fairly thoroughly uh, to Jesus, but you know, God, God asks us for total commitment. You know, Jesus is our friend and He's our Savior, but He is also our King. Jesus is Lord. Right? God is King. He is Lord of history and Lord of all creation. And that language in the Bible of of Jesus is Lord and the kingdom of God—it's not metaphorical language. It isn't, it isn't just a formality. It isn't just a title. It isn't just trying to, to, to compare it to something we'd understand. It is 100% literal. It is exactly the message God intends to convey, that he is the Lord of all creation, that he is our king. And so God asks his people to submit themselves to him entirely, to place every aspect of our lives no matter how private, no matter how personal, under his authority. And please hear me, under his authority, not under the church's authority, not under my authority, under God's authority. And that terrifies us. It scares us senseless and we run from that. We have no interest in letting Jesus into every area of our lives. We'll let him have some things, right? He can be responsible for our physical health. Okay, we'll take the healing when we can get it. He can provide us money when we need it. That's always okay. And the occasional miracle or two is fine. But he doesn't get to decide how we spend our free time. He can have Sunday morning, but, but the Cowboys get Sunday afternoon, right? And he better not show up on Monday. Right? Now the <laughs> Slow burn, apparently. That was a good one. My friends, the truth is I, I, I struggle with that part of my faith just as much as anyone else. 
There are absolutely parts of my life I do not want to let Jesus into. I don't want him to tell me what to do on Monday morning. I just gave him all of Sunday. And in fact, in my line of work, he gets all of my Sundays, right? I would much rather, on any given day, sleep in than wake up early to pray. And at times, I I really don't even want to let him tell me how to lead this church. I would much rather make my own choices than listen to him, because making my own choices is a lot easier. It's a lot more comfortable. It's a lot less challenging, and it lets me stay right in my comfort zone. So we're going to turn to Isaiah chapter 54, just the first few verses. Sing, barren woman, you who never bore a child, burst into song, shout for joy, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent, stretch your tent curtains wide, do not hold back, lengthen your cords, strengthen your stakes, for you will spread out to the right and to the left. Your descendants will dispossess nations and settle in their desolate cities. Do not be afraid. You will not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's let's take that imagery at face value for a minute. Many of you may have experienced infertility, and if you haven't, there's a good chance someone that you love has. And so you, you know the pain of wondering why you can't bear children. You may know the pain of wondering why you can't have kids, but so many other people seem to do it so effortlessly. And maybe you've even wondered why, why you or your daughter or your friend, someone who is in a loving, committed relationship who would provide a wonderful, healthy, stable home, can't have children, but, but people who can't provide any of those things seem to have no trouble conceiving. It's a common thing. It's painful. It's devastating. And however bad it is now, in the ancient world, it was inconceivably worse. In the ancient world, a woman was only as valuable as her womb. Now, to be clear, the Bible pushes back against that idea right from the beginning of Genesis, consistently. But it takes a long time for that message to sink in. And there are only a handful of examples in Scripture of a man who remained with his wife even though she couldn't give him children. Abraham, Zechariah, who was John the Baptist's father. That's pretty much the list. And it's worth pointing out that both of those men are held up as paragons of righteousness, incredible examples. Most of the time, a woman who could not have children was a hopeless woman. A husband would very likely divorce her if she could not produce children for him. And a woman who was divorced and infertile would never find another husband which meant she would be reduced to 
begging or to prostitution in order to feed herself. And even if her husband was a good man who loved her and who remained with her all her life, she was still in trouble because if he died first, which was very likely, there was no one to care for her in her old age. Because the only people who care for the elderly in that society are their own children. So most women relied on their children to care for them in their old age. A childless woman was always in danger. And so here you have an image of God bringing hope to the most hopeless members of society. In their hour of need, God will provide. And not only will God provide her with children, but her family will be so large she'll have to get a bigger tent to live in, right? She'll have to expand the wall. She'll have to get it. She won't be able to fit them all into one space. They're going to dispossess nations. There's going to be so many of them. She might as well actually just take the walls down because no tent will be able to contain them. This is a, a radical, incredible change from utter hopelessness and despair to uncontainable joy. This is what Jesus brings. The, the whole chapter right before this in Isaiah is all about Jesus, the Messiah, and what he will do for his people. And so this chapter then, chapter 54, provides a glimpse into the future of all those who put their trust in Jesus. When we turn to God and put our trust in him, God does extraordinary things. It's as if he's given children to a barren woman, to a person who has no hope. All of a sudden, they have everything and more. Just like he did with Abraham and Sarah. Just like he did with Hannah, the mother of Samuel. Just like he did with Zechariah and Elizabeth, the parents of John the Baptist. Trusting in God always leads to extraordinary divine activity. The rest of that chapter in Isaiah uses marriage as a metaphor with God as the husband and Israel as the wife. And the reason is that marriage is a covenant just like the covenant that Israel makes with God. And a covenant requires a commitment. Which means all these incredible blessings that God offers Israel both through the, the covenant in the Old Testament and the new covenant through Jesus. All of these blessings are not unconditional. God's love is unconditional. His blessings are not. God requires a commitment from us before we start to see those things happening. We want God to, to enlarge our tent, to grow our church family so much that we have to tear down these walls to fit them all in. We have to commit to him first. We have to have skin in the game. We have to put our money where our mouth is. We have to commit. Because when we commit to God, God commits to us. Almost 10 years ago now, I, I committed to spend my life with an amazing woman. Anyone who's been married for more than five minutes knows that marriage is not easy. It's not a fairy tale. There are days when you question your choice of partner, and there are days when your partner questions their choice of you. 
but I don't have any regrets. I've spent nearly a decade with a woman who loves me despite knowing all of my faults, who supports me, who accepts me, who is just as committed to me as I am to her. She challenges me, pushes me to be better than I am. She's a source of comfort and joy all of my life. And if that's what I get from committing to a, to a woman, imagine then what happens when we commit to God. If a lifelong commitment to another flawed human being can be such a source of blessing and joy and encouragement and strength and stability, then how much more comes from a lifelong commitment to Jesus? And the thing is, God responds to our commitment in kind. You can't be all that surprised that God seems absent from your life if you come to church once a month, pray only in times of absolute desperation, never read your Bible, and only give when you feel like it. Paul tells the Corinthians in his second letter to them that he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. In other words, the more you commit to God, the more God commits to you. There's a connection there. If you are only halfway committed to God, you can't be all that shocked if God's only halfway committed to you. And I say this because, you know, in the midst of all this, this is a very faithful church. Most of you made pledges last year, and you have stuck to those pledges this year. Most of you are involved one way or another. Most of you I'm looking at are here just about every Sunday. And if that's you, the question becomes, if you already give, can you give more? Not just money, again, but, but your time, your energy, your gifts, your presence, your witness. What can you cut back on in the rest of your life to make more room for Jesus? Any good marriage counselor will tell you that a marriage is only as strong as the commitment that you make to your spouse. If you, if you want to be a half-hearted husband, you can't very well expect your wife to be anything other than a half-hearted wife. And frankly, you'll be lucky if she's that. But all too many people will show up to church only when they feel like it. Will pray only when they feel like it. They'll let their Bible sit unused on their bookshelf. They'll give nothing to the church. They'll choose sports over worship. And then they'll expect God to be fully committed to them. And they get outraged and offended when God does not answer all of their prayers. You know, it wasn't all that long ago that if you said you were a regular attender of worship, that meant you were there three Sundays out of the month, and maybe the fourth one is because you were sick or because you were traveling. But now if you ask someone if they are a regular attender of church, all the surveys show that that means for most people, they'll say they are a regular church attendee if they go once or twice a month, sometimes less. As a society, our entire idea of what commitment means is devalued. But then we, we expect God to do whatever we want. We expect him to answer all of our prayers. We look around and, and we wonder why we aren't seeing in our lives the sorts of miracles that we see in the Bible, but we kind of forget that if you pay close attention to those miracle stories, what you always see is a person who is radically committed to being faithful to God. 
You see a person who is taking leaps of faith, who is stepping out in uncertainty. God's blessings are are incredible and they are rich and they are miraculous and they are overwhelming. And the consistent witness of Scripture is that for the most part, God gives those things to the people who commit themselves totally to Him. So often we're, we're just like spoiled children and we we think that God should be serving us and we kind of treat God like a cosmic vending machine, right? Press all the right buttons, do all the right things, and then God gives you the candy bar you want. And then we get outraged when he doesn't do what we want. And the reality is God wants to bless us. God wants to blow us away with his generosity, with his goodness, with his mercy. He also wants to be our Lord. Jesus is king, and he loves us, but he wants our love too. And if we aren't going to return that love, then why should we expect him to bless us? We have confused blessing and love. We, we, we think if Jesus loves us unconditionally, then we can do whatever we want and we can expect him to give us all the good things, but that's not how it works. Jesus can love us and still leave us alone. He can love us and still withdraw from our lives. Because if we show him through our thoughts and through our actions that we don't actually want anything to do with him, then he's content to let us live without him. I think it is a a fundamental tenet of the Christian faith that God does not force himself on people. If you don't want God, then he will let you go off on your own. If If your actions, if your lifestyle consistently demonstrate that you do not want Jesus in your life, that you do not want Jesus to be your Lord, then he will let you go. But if we want him, if we want Jesus in our lives, if we want Jesus to be our Lord, if we commit ourselves to him in every way, then his response will blow us away. Maybe it's the Holy Spirit calling. Now, I say all this, and then I'm going to ask you to turn in pledge cards, and sometimes, you know, the, the, there can be a disconnect there because people, people don't necessarily see pledging to a church budget as something that's very spiritual. But here's the thing. You are pledging to give back to God's church. You are committing to make a sacrifice for the kingdom of God. And the reality is when you commit financially to something, you are tying yourself to it. If you pledge to give to our church for the next year, you are pledging to be a part of this church for another year. You are pledging to be here for another year. You're pledging to serve God for another year. It's not just about the number on the sheet. The name on the pledge card is just as important as the number. Obviously, we need to know, or at least have an idea, 
of how much people are going to give over the next year. It's the only way we can plan. But what is so much more important is for us to know who is really here. Who is really committed? Who who is going to be part of this church, not just with your gifts, but with your presence, with your witness, with your talents and your energy and your service? There are so many people in this room who contribute so much more than just money. But do you know what the incredible thing is? All those people who I look at in this room and who, who give of their time, who tirelessly work for this church, who, who show up when we need them, who do all the little unseen things in the background that no one else notices, all those people are faithful givers. There is a connection there. It's real. And I am fully aware that there are some people who for many reasons, can't do much more than give financially. And if that's your case, God bless you. You're still being faithful. But there is an undeniable connection between committing to supporting your church in this way and committing to supporting your church in every other way. It is a holistic thing. We are in the midst of such uncertain times. I know that. Believe me, as someone whose entire livelihood depends on this church's generosity, I am keenly aware of the uncertainty of our future. Not just this congregation and our status within our denomination, but just even broader than that, there is so much uncertainty in the world around us. And I feel like I'm beating a dead horse, but for years now we have been living in a world that is just suffused with fear and anxiety over the future. in the midst of all that is the solid rock on which we stand. I want to commit myself to that rock. I want to put all my hope, all my trust, all my faith in the God who I know will carry me through the storm. This is my pledge card. And in just a minute, I'm going to put it over here with all of yours. I am making the same commitment I'm asking all of you to make. This is not the pastor wagging his finger at you all from on high saying, be more like me. I'm in the same boat. All the fears and anxieties you feel, I feel them too. All the struggles that you have with the faith, I have them too. Being a pastor doesn't mean that you all of a sudden are a perfect Christian. You can ask my wife, she can tell you all the ways in which I sin. My friends, when we commit to God, God commits to us. You see it time and time again throughout the Bible. When people commit to God, God commits to them. And the more we commit to God, the more God commits to us. So let's commit to him together.
Let's do something extraordinary. Let's double down. If we're already giving, let's give more. If you are already wondering how you can possibly give more of your time and of your energy to the church, maybe it's time to look at other things in your life and see what can be cut out. But let's double down on Jesus. Let's throw ourselves headlong into a commitment to the only one who has the power, the will, and the love to commit to us back in a way that will carry us through every storm we face. Let's commit to him together. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.